The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. We're going to continue talking tonight about Blood Red Skies Digital. And in order to discuss that in a more informed and less caustic manner, well, maybe not the less caustic part, but at least a more informed manner, we decided to bring my buddy Ash from Diecast Digital on board tonight. Ash, how are you doing? I'm very well indeed, Doug. Good to hear that. We also have Brett on since Brett has been playing through the prototype. Brett, how are you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. Good to have both of you on. Well, Ash, I'm going to start off with the obvious question of who the heck is Ash and what the fuck is Diecast Digital? Where are oh. you? What are you doing? <laughs> Tell us about yourself and we'll just pretend to care. Such extreme language. I'm horrified. I'm terrified. I, I can tell. Everybody. Welcome yeah, to the podcast. Of yeah, of course. Well, thank you. It's a very great pleasure indeed. So I'm Ash, uh, as you said. Uh, Colclough is my second name for those that can't pronounce it. Uh, so I've been in the games industry, video games industry, for uh, 20-ish plus years. Started off in the late 90s um, with Infogrames Atari. Um, met my business partner, Glyn Williams, uh, when we were doing a, a, a game called Independence War, uh, which is a space combat simulation title. And then over the years, we've probably done, what, 30 titles on and off, maybe, maybe a bit more. Uh, some of them were successful, some of them not so successful. Um, so we've been, we've done things based on IPs such as Doctor Who, Battlestar Galactica, Lego, Warhammer 40k, Formula One, Sonic and Sega All-Stars Racing. We've done a bunch of stuff um, and learnt a great deal along the way. Excellent. Well, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. I mean, we can have a long interview or I can ask the questions people want to know right at the beginning. You're doing this via Kickstarter. When is that Kickstarter kicking off? So I can confirm that the Kickstarter will go live on February the 20th. Excellent. So February 20th, we should see something for Blood Red Skies Digital Edition on Kickstarter. Now everyone can disconnect and stop listening to the podcast because you've got all the info you wanted. (laughs) Well, no, to continue, uh, let's talk a little bit about the background of Blood Red Skies Digital, how we got to this point of a digital game and kind of some of the pitfalls and things we've had to step around and, and things we've had to work through. So we know that obviously Andy built the game, designed the game, has has been working to get it published via Warlord uh, to build a community out there. Uh, but how did you get rolled up with Andy to actually turn this into something digital? Right, sure. So I think the common link with all of us is uh, Warhammer 40K. So Warhammer oh, in general. Those James dirty Bush. bastards with Warhammer yeah. 40K. <laughs> so it, it, all, it all comes back to a, a common link in some form or other um, with, with Games Workshop. So um, we did a, a Warhammer 40K title in the past. Um, we then met a bunch of people at Games Workshop. People then move on and move on to new companies and new projects. 
And eventually we came around and all the planets aligned and we found ourselves kind of talking with Andy via a former contact at Games Workshop and kind of saying, you know what, we kind of like aerial combat games. So this Blood Red Skies looks interesting. And um, we kind of went, yeah, I know Andy Chambers who designed that. And I said, oh yeah, Andy, that, that's, that, that's a good a good a good designer to be um, to be potentially working with a great designer so we we decided we'd get in touch with andy uh, we had a conversation with the guys at warlord and then one thing led to another and we did a very quick um prototype uh, just to kind of see if we could really capture the essence of what makes blood red skies blood red skies and that's really how i get to met meet you guys um, and ask you that question very early doors when, when we got the prototype working and Andy said, yeah, that's, that's looking good. Um, and one of the things that we really, really want to do is is validate our design and our, and our work through community-based feedback. And we, we've not done that uh, so much in the past as we perhaps would have liked. Um, and this time around, we really wanted to get right from the very get-go, the prototype in the hands of the players. Um, so we reached out to you, we reached out to, to Ken, we reached out to, uh, to Roger, uh, and really asked one simple question, you know, does that prototype capture the essence of what is Blood Red Skies, and does it capture what you guys find so interesting and compelling about the title? And equally, um, you know, it was an opportunity for us to show and the, our skills and capabilities and for us to start working with him in that regard. So that's how it all kind of came about. Well, Brett, does it capture the essence of the tabletop game? Uh, yeah, anybody who's playing the tabletop game will immediately recognize the mechanics and the gameplay. It just has all the cool chrome on it, right? It's like playing a movie. I don't know how to describe it. It's, you know, it's, it's got all the animations and cool sound effects. That's awesome. I love it. Well, and I think that's one of the funniest parts of this argument people have over digital versus tabletop as if they are mutually exclusive. Um, because when you and I play the Malta battles, we either have to be making the pew pew sounds ourselves or be playing, you know, Siege of Malta in the background or Battle for Malta uh, to have audio effects. So, you know, it, it's really fun for me to play a digital game, have some of that chrome. Uh, as well as being able to play a tabletop game right across from my buddies and and all the banter and kind of things that go on there. So, so Ash, I know you, you have hinted at that as well, that being a tabletop gamer yourself, um, although you actually have the advanced squad leader rules at some point, which I assume you've actually read, unlike me, I think I've filtered halfway through them. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, your goal was to not build something in an attempt to replace tabletop gaming, because that's quite asinine, but rather something that would build on top of it. How, how have you guys kept that in your design methodology and kind of in the forefront? That's an interesting question. The, the whole question of tabletop versus digital is, we don't frame it that way. We, we, I don't personally look at it that way. They are, they're not mutually exclusive. They're mutually supporting. Um, one can lead to another. Right now, the, there is no real way of, of separating out the, the, the two uh, market spaces, but there's some distinct crossover between digital gamers and tabletop gamers. And one doesn't replace the experience of the other, but rather complements it. So there's always going to be people that love the tabletop 
experience. Now, that's cool. You want to paint your models, you want to get your models on the table, or you may not want to get your models on the table, depending on how good your painting skills are. Um, but, you know, you want to kind of show off and, and engage and, in, a, in a very physical, social way. And that's another thing. People say that, that digital games aren't social. And again, I beg to differ there because I've met so many, so many friends throughout all of Europe, in the US, in the Far East, you know, met so many different people from so many different cultures by playing online uh, video games, whether they be strategy games, adventure games, World of Warcraft, whatever. There is a community and that's what it's about. And really digital is an extension of the Blood Red Skies community. It's another space, another area from which people, through which people can engage in their hobby. And at times that will be through a digital medium. At other times it will be through a physical, traditional tabletop experience. Clearly with what's going on currently right now with the global pandemic, uh, it's um, somewhat restricted. And people are saying, well, you know, it now's the time for, for digital. Well, there's kind of times for digital, there's kinds of times for tabletop. Um, my partner and I play Lords of Waterdeep. If we're together, which we are quite a lot lately because we're kind of locked in, um, we would never kind of, you know, get out our iPads and play Lords of Waterdeep multiplayer on our iPads. We wouldn't do that. We would crack out the board game, play with all the pieces and, and do that, the, the board game. That, that's what we would do. Um, we would never kind of play it multiplayer over our, our iPads. So there's, there's horses for courses, really. Um, one could be a gateway into another. The, you know, a lot of people could currently, there isn't really much of a digital scene uh, for Blood Red Skies. That's the beginnings of one. Um, but there is an established community, again, somewhat small on the tabletop side. So it could be that we're looking currently to get the tabletop gamers into the digital, but eventually there will be traffic going the other way um, from digital back into the tabletop experience. And so what I see it as really is just expanding the Blood Red Skies audience that's it well you know i'm just really hopeful that people that uh, maybe don't play the game who dabble in this will then you know want to play the full tabletop game and, and I, i've heard people say oh you know these kind of games will you know make people not want to play the actual tabletop game or will reduce the demand for models and stuff but i can tell you at least I, I don't think that's the case i think it might be the other way around because you know i don't collect uh u.s stuff but i've been playing wildcats on digital and i want Wildcats now. That's going to be my next order. I want to paint up Wildcats for, you know, I'm, I'm trying out tactics and flying stats that I hadn't messed with before. And now I want the real thing for future tabletop games. Well, I think people tend to be dismissive of communities and ways of engaging that they either have not experienced or, and I'll be a little arrogant here, don't know how to experience. So, a number of Grognard-style gamers may look down their nose at World of Warcraft players and people who've been on MMOs and RPGs and stuff like that and go, huh, well, you never really meet anyone. You never really engage with anyone. And I think back to the early days of multi-user dungeons and MMOs and being on text-based things and people that were not at the same college with me who I interacted with on a daily basis knew where they went to school, knew what they did. Uh, and 
it was kind of funny. Did we ever really have much of a interaction outside of the game? No, but I knew their real world background because we had time to talk about it. So I think there is a way to build community there. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think what uh, what some people just they just don't understand it well enough to know how you would interact uh, between the digital and physical realms, and that you can build community both ways. And you'll have ways of linking up and meeting opponents as well as allies <laughs> online, uh, and an ability to find people who uh, who are interested in the same parts of the game. Because Blood Red Skies is a pretty diverse game historically. Uh, even alternate history-wise, <laughs> Brett, the things you've been exploring, uh, and and history ages, you know, going into Korea from World War II and things like that. So I think there is definitely a chance to engage with people. But what I will say is like any, any digital tool, any digital uh, online um, meeting area, you know, it's, it's going to attract different kinds of people. And it's going to attract them for different reasons. I, I've been talking a lot about online with uh, people who play Ogre and GEV, old micro games with you know counters and printed off maps. And I love the digital version of Ogre, uh, but I love it for different reasons. I, even if we were not in a pandemic, it would be hard for me to call up my buddies who actually like to play Ogre and don't want to play other things and say, hey, let's go push around a bunch of paper counters or maybe some plastic models for a game that most people haven't played since the 1980s. Yet I can jump on Steam and I can play the Ogre digital game and I can try different units, I can try different tactics, and I can kind of scratch that itch until one of my buddies goes, oh yeah, I'm done playing 40K, or I'm done playing Titanicus, I'm done playing whatever uh, this month, let's try something different. And I can say, hey, here's Ogre, remember this game? Uh, and they And they really do kind of build on each other. But we've talked about opening up a larger player base. And Ash, it's a question I'll kind of throw back to you. A little a little of a difficult question is, how are we going to attract people who are not Blood Red Skies players? Because quite honestly, the Blood Red Skies community seems to be pretty, pretty hardcore behind uh, your efforts. But we know we're going to need more than just them. Yeah, absolutely. So on, on, on this, there's an easy-ish an easy answer. And that is that what we've got to do is design a great video game. That's, that, that's it. it. That's the goal. Um, how do we do that? Well, the way we do that is by following the tabletop game, because the tabletop game is a great game. Uh, so game mechanics-wise, it's all cool. It's great. Andy's done a fantastic job of creating something that's inherently quite simple to pick up. It isn't a 356-page ring binder, advanced squad leader. Um, it's a fairly accessible strategy title. But it's nonetheless got good complexity, got great depth, got great scalability. It's got the ability to take aerial engagements in World War II to any particular aspect of aerial engagements, whatever that may be, whichever theater of war, whichever aircraft, whichever setting, whether that be naval engagements, dogfighting, escort missions. The range of what you can do with the, with the core mechanics that Andy's created is virtually limitless. So, from, from our perspective, it's really about taking that tabletop game experience and ensuring that nothing gets in the way of that in terms of becoming a video game. I, I did an article recently about flow and progression in, in video games design, and, and really there should be nothing that prevents you from immersing yourself in the experience. So, you know, if you're working out the kind of mechanics of how this thing works rather than focusing on how you're going to take that carrier, out and get past that defensive line of fighters, 
then then that's where we haven't done our job properly. So we will expand the audience by A, staying true to the tabletop game, but B, delivering a really slick, really cool interface, good visuals. There's a limit to how far it makes sense to take the visuals because achieving reality and realism is quite expensive. But then again, you've got the cool kind of 1940s propaganda art style, which is one of the things that drew me artistically to towards uh, Blood Red Skies. It was uh, quite an interesting design in its own right, visually. So I think, I think that's, that's the answer. The digital market is, is large, it's highly competitive, um, but as a PC, we can go onto other platforms. I've just heard people saying, is it just a PC? No, it can go on other platforms um, if the demand is there. But for PC World War II strategy titles, there's a big market. It's a competitive market. And we have to do uh, our very best to deliver the, the best possible product um, that we can, uh, given the resources that we've got. Well, so let's talk a little bit about managing all that and managing the expectations, because as you say, it's a it covers such a diverse theater of war with Blood Red Skies. How do you, as the the individual husbanding the resources of time, money, people's hours in the day. How do you focus your efforts? Where, where do you really focus those efforts when you say, okay, as we're going through prototype stages, as we're approaching, you know, uh, various releases, various uh, demonstrations of capability, how do you prioritize what's more important, some cool, small little rule inside the Blood Red Skies game? buried on page 43, uh, or making the the game seem cinematic, making it feel like there's there's aircraft actually moving around, shooting each other down with the, the little sounds and, and visual effects. Sure. So there's a, there's a, there's a thing called form follows function. Uh, and with strategy titles, that's what it's really about. It, it's really the functionality that's key. Um, you could play a great game with just blocks, right? Just in a white room. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been done for hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, and if the game is, is a compelling experience with just kind of prefabs or blocks or, or whatever, um, then that's the key. And then you basically add the depth and add the visuals, which help to help suspension of disbelief. It pulls you into that world visually. Um, but it's the mechanics that count and it's, it's the interactivity uh, that you get from that chest, for example. You know, it's a, it's a relatively simple set of rules. Um, and you can play chess with, with different colored pebbles if you wanted to. It just helps if you know what a knight looks like and, and what a queen looks like, clearly, because you need to know that for the game mechanics. What am I saying? Um, so there's, there's the kind of element of form follows uh, kind of function. It functions the key thing with this and the key mechanics. And then visually, uh, we can, we can go in there. I mean, I'm really glad that people are, are, are digging the visuals already that, they're quite early stage visuals um, for us, and we intend to take the visuals forward um, as we progress throughout development. To answer the question about how do we focus on things, we have to make sure that our code base is inherently modular and scalable, um, especially to a Kickstarter, right? Because we don't know where that's going to end up. It may end up delivering enough to deliver a base game, what is a base game? I'll come on to that later. It may end up being able to deliver far more than that. And I hope it does, um, because then we can deliver a more compelling, bigger, larger, grandiose scale project um, for the same 
same money, right? Same bang for your buck, bigger bang for your buck. So it depends on on the demand. It depends on how we kind of take it forward. But what we want to do is deliver the best possible product, regardless. So if we raise X, we will deliver the best possible game for X. If we if we get to Y, then we will deliver the best possible product based on on, on that particular. Uh, raise and, and functionality. So it's really it's really about us being able to scale up um, our production in line with demand, um, and we can do that because all of our systems are built to be to, built to be modular. We don't expect to get to the end point from day one. It's it's a gradual process, and we're committed to the long term development of Blood Red Skies. You know, there'll be a starting point. There'll be hopefully an expansion point. We may even look to reach out to um, publishers, perhaps, that, that understand this market and have access to a wider market. There's only a few publishers that really operate and understand and know this space. Um, so, yeah, you know, there, are, there are ways we can take this forward. You know, Ash, you mentioned sometime uh, earlier, uh, I think we had a offline conversation, you were talking about how you do the AI and stuff. And one of the things that really fascinated me, we were kind of describing the algorithm, I guess, the AI, how it calculates the moves that it can make. And there's a scoring system. And so, it, you know, it's a program where it could take the highest score. So it always makes the most, uh, you know, the highest value decision. And I, I found that idea really fascinating. And you went on to discuss how it could, um, it could, uh, be modified so you could essentially dial in you know different levels of difficulty for the AI so that you know maybe instead of a hundred percent of the time it taken the most valuable decision maybe it only does it sixty percent of the time and and then you know maybe I'm speaking way off the reservation here but I, mm -hmm. I, I was pretty excited too when you talked about how that gives the potential to even give you know pilots uh, almost like uh, some character you can make them maybe more risk takers or more conservative are you able to talk about that at this point or is that too early no i think we're absolutely correct um, so ai is a, is a really good example of at the moment it kind of sucks it's kind of dumb uh, and that's not to belittle the work that you has done on this, on this bit. so you and i love you to bits and you're doing a great job um i'm now going to tell you why your ai sucks currently uh, and it, it sucks because it's the first level, the first iteration along a path. Um, so the AI starts off by being quite dumb, and then it progressively gets more and more intelligent as it goes forward. So right now, it operates on a value-based system that you just adequately and lovely uh, description by Brett, so that's all good stuff. Um, but what we want to really do is then layer over the top kind of objective tactics personas and the ability for units to take on roles so one example may be that you know i the ai basically decides that this guy um, is going to be the the, the the main man he's going to be the one that takes down the opposition and this unit job and this unit's job is to protect the main man to act as their wingman so that's what i mean by roles so that we can assign specific roles um Clearly, each scenario has an objective, and the AI needs to be aware of what that objective is. That may be to take out a carrier. It may be to ensure that a bomber exits the map and you escort it from one side to another. Um, it could be that it needs to take out a whole column of tanks, whatever it may be. Um, 
the AI needs to know what those objectives are and then really, inverted commas, think through how its value system then modifies and changes based on that knowledge. Uh, and then the final layer uh, that we can put on this is something called personas. So the personas would be, am I kind of quite an aggressive overall personality? Um, will I take, how, what's my appetite for risk? So at the moment, as you guys uh, are part of the prototype team, um, you'll have noticed that you can, that the, the AI basically doesn't really take into account what's going on behind it. It kind of goes, well, I'm going to go after this chap. Um, I'm not really looking behind me. By doing this move, I've now just set myself up as, you know, for a perfect tailing shot for the opposition. So the AI is, is will develop. It's iterative and it's based on player feedback as well. So, you know, we need, at the moment, the AI can give give certain players, uh, including myself, you know, kind of a good run for our money. But then Ken, Roger, Doug, Steve, you know, Steve was saying that, you know, it kind of hasn't got a you know, firing solution on it at the moment. And it's kind of like, really? And so, uh, I don't believe him. Steve, you're lying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we don't know. We, we would like to see video evidence of this clearly. Um, and exactly. Um, but the AI will develop and it will, it will, it will go forward. Um, but clearly, the AI also does one important thing. And this, this, this perhaps goes back to something we were talking about earlier. And that is that a digital game can teach people how to play the game. Um, it can take new players and grab them by the hand. And if the onboarding system is good and, and the tutorials are good, it can introduce people to the game in a very, very handheld, um, easy way to get, get into the game to learn it. You don't have to sit there and, and, and thumb through a rule book. So, and then the AI has another job. The AI needs to then take that player on a journey from being a novice to a, to a good player, to a very good player. And I think it's at that point that then it becomes about multiplayer. Um, so for a lot of the, the experienced tabletop community, multiplayer will instantly be where it's at. And they won't really care about the AI and they'll just go, well, I just want to have at it against, you know, Dirk because I fancy taking on Dirk and taking him down. Yeah, I can't, can't That's think. not difficult. <laughs> well, I, I probably beg to differ there, but there you go. Um, so uh, so the, the multiplayer will become a thing, but the, the, the AI is also there part as a teacher, as a challenger, and also to, to really onboard people into the blood red, blood red sky experience. So that's, that's something that's often, often missed and overlooked. So the AI needs to be good enough to get people into the game, to make the single player scenarios uh, challenging, even for the most experienced players. But it's also a pathway to, to, to multiplayer, which opens up leaderboards, competitive play, casual play, when that's friendly matches, but I, I'm kind of looking forward to the, the Brits taking on the, 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 the Americans and, and, and vice versa and, and, and Europeans and, and all that kind of stuff. We can do leaderboards, we can do tournaments. Um, there's all that multiplayer functionality that begins to open up. And again, um, multiplayer is the multiplayer functionality is also scalable, as is everything that we do. So its flexibility is the key thing when it comes to production. 
the real question is, will Roger play on your UK team or has he become a traitor and joined as Colonials and will he play on the American team? <laughs> yeah, he could be a bit of a splitter. I'll have, I'll have to have a word with, with Roger. Exactly. Sure. We'll just keep him on side, but uh, I'm sure his nationalistic tendencies will, will, will somewhat rise to the surface if he's got any nationalistic tendencies. We can hope he'll be a, a valuable that tight player. That tight turn will have an influence on what side he is, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he will take whichever side gets tight turned. So, yeah, that's what cards you get, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and that brings up a great point because I was going to discuss the, the AI in Blood Red Skies Digital has to deal with more permutations and possibilities than in a lot of games. So if we built a computer AI for advanced squad leader or for 40K or for any any one of these very direct board games, there generally is one physical path that is the best path to the enemy. There generally is one engagement range you can shoot them at. There generally is one way to get into close combat with the enemy. Not so in Blood Red Skies. Between what your aircraft can do, how cards can influence the performance of that aircraft, how cards can influence the number of dice you roll in that attack when you take that attack, whether that attack is head-on, deflection, stern. There's there's a lot of ways to get to the point of shooting the bad guy, but they're not all equal. And so I think the AI has a, a big challenge in front of it that you know, you, you can be dismissive. I, I think uh, you guys have done a pretty good job so far with the AI. Uh, but it it does currently sit there and think, well, do I play tight turn to get there or do I just burn advantage knowing that I'm at least going to take a tailing shot and have a, a high probability of kill on this fighter? And And it does kind of warm my heart when we in the tabletop gaming community are so used to the dice going cold and we're so used to selling all of our advantage to get into shooting solutions. And then no matter whether you're rolling six, seven or eight dice, all of the being zero successes. And uh, to see the computer do that, to see the computer really move a couple fighters uh, into optimum tailing solutions where I'm like, I'm just going to lose these fighters. The, the game's over at this point. And their dice went cold for like, it must've been three or four attacks. And I laughed as my zeros then got out of the way, turned around and the rest of their buddies came and ganged up on the Wildcats. But <laughs> there's a level of difficulty there that's not just move across the river, shoot the tank, assault the enemy. It's heartwarming to hear that because it's such early days with, with the AI and, and with, the, with the initial coding of that. The fact that it's beginning to generate memorable moments for you Doug, there is really great news because that for me is what what makes a video any game a, a good game it's, it's when that game when you're playing the game you enjoy it but when the game ends you kind of you have a conversation right post game about that, that was pretty cool and remember when we did that? oh yeah and then, then I, you had me and then the dice just went cold i mean i completely lost so Games that create stories and narratives that live well beyond when the game finishes, that's, that's a good sign. You know, really, that's great for me to hear that. That gives me a lot of hope and, and, and a lot of joy to hear that because that's, that's what great design does. And I think we can, the reason why we can get to that so quickly again is because of the very tight system of mechanics that Andy's created, that they are, fairly simple in, in terms of their mechanical structure, but nonetheless complex when you start adding in cards and card play and, and, and generating different paths and routes and opportunities. The cards basically, from my simplistic view, 
uh, allow you to break the rules, but they allow you to break the rules in really interesting ways. So they, Steve once said to me uh, that the cards ensure that you know fielding a squadron of wildcats feels a lot different to fielding a squadron of zeros. And that absolutely does, but it doesn't break the underlying mechanics. The mechanics are solid uh, and they're still there. So I think that's one of the beauties of working with an established IP. Uh, the game mechanics have been built by a fantastic guy that's then tried and tested those over many, many tabletop experiences. So really it's our job to be, you know, the custodians of that and make sure we don't break that, but enhance it as much as possible through allowing you a really slick interface that just allows you to just play the game and just jump in and have fun from immediately. Bam, just do it. Well, was there any real direction from Andy on things that you absolutely had to get right or things you, you absolutely were not going to do, uh, things that were, were kind of giving you the left and right lateral limits of, of steering you down this, this process of building his game in a digital format. And, and I'm sure there are things that he likes very much, and I'm sure there's rules he you know, looks at and goes, oh, well, all right, so there's a little bit of a loophole there, but let's make sure the, the AI doesn't at least exploit that. Did he, did he go through any of those things with you? I think I think what Andy wants to see is a digital version of his tabletop game, and that's and we're cool with that because that that tabletop game is pretty pretty good. It's great. So so we didn't have any kind of fallout on that. Um, in the past, it, it's difficult because if you take if you go too far away from the tabletop experience, you alienate the tabletop gaming market, and if you Absolutely. Try to force it down into the action area. Uh, to appease the kind of video games market, then you kind of end up, and I've been here, trust me, you kind of end up falling between the two schools and not pleasing either. So by staying true to the tabletop game, um, that's where we win. And I think that was that was understood um, by all parties. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we have a great relationship with, with, with Andy. He's, he's on our Slack team. We ping him and say, what, what did you mean by this? And, oh, yeah, okay, you can see that. You can see why you've done it in that way. So we have, you know, sometimes we can have little debates about certain things and, and whatnot. But for the most part, we've got a shared objective, which is to just get get the core of what makes Blood Red Skies, Blood Red Skies, in digital form. That's it. Well, and I think that also draws upon one of the strengths of the Blood Red Skies community is that Andy is approachable, even though he doesn't want to be pinged for every rules question. <laughs> but but he is he's very approachable about why did you do this or was this intentional? Because there was obviously a little bit of a dust up in the ready room this last week about rules as written, rules as intended. And Andy knows that that stressor is there. It's going to be in any any game designer's mind as they are trying to minimize the pages in the rule book yet maximize the playability of the game but at the same time we all have to understand there are a lot of assumptions that go into this game when you when you play blood red skies you're not picking an altitude and airspeed a dive angle a a turn attitude you are generalizing these things and so as a result with that generalization and the fun that comes from the generalization, or as we in America call it, the beer and pretzels gaming part of it, uh, you know you're going to create some odd situations that may leave you scratching your head and going, well, how do we do this? How do we play ace cards uh, with multiple aces? Do they do they stick to one guy? Can anyone play the ace card? Or why is that B5 Kate outmaneuvering a wildcat? Uh, those are rules, compromises that Andy had to write in there. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if you look at Magic the Gathering, which is something I play also a great deal of. Magic the All Gathering. All right, the interview's over. We're not talking to him anymore. He plays Magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I'm going to get to the point, trust me. Don't, don't everybody run away at this point. Um, if you're still there, you're crazy and insane anyway. Exactly. But, um, thank you for getting to this point. It's 36 minutes. Um, but anyway, look, the Magic the Gathering, the point is that at a surface level, the rules are quite simple. But if you look at the competitive rules where everything's spelt out, every I and T, you know, T cross, every I dotted, it's pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff. Um, so I think Blood Red Sky strikes that really good balance between, you know, laying out what the rules are. Sometimes it's going to be ambiguity. But that's the other thing about the digital game. Uh, and that is that we, we will know this game better than we know ourselves by the time we get to finishing the code base because computers just are binary, right? They either go, that's right or that's wrong. So it, it will give the entire rule set a bit of a, a, a laundry uh, as we go through Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, and I think and, that's and, good. And that's, that's probably a good thing. And Andy, Andy is, is kind of you know, the designer uh, in the wings and custodian of the IP. And, uh, you know, he is there to help us to make sure that we, we, we don't get bogged down in, in, in too much detail in terms of looking at that and just saying, look, this is the way this bit is, guys. This is the way that this functions and this is how it interrelates with other elements within the game. Um, and that's great for us because, you know what? He's a fantastic designer, so why would we not listen? Because I never listen to Andy. I always disagree with him. No, <laughs> that's not true. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Kickstarter and how we're going to get from point A, which is prototype, to point B or maybe Z, uh, which is deliverable game. We'll be right back. And we're back. So let's talk Kickstarter, because I think everybody's been twiddling their thumbs listening to Brett and Ash and I wax poetic about Blood Red Skies and digital gaming and community and all that stuff. And they just want to know about the Kickstarter. So, Ash, we're going to rake you over the coals here for a second about Kickstarter. All right. Uh, let's talk the why first, then we'll get into the details. So, so why Kickstarter? Why didn't you just find yourself a white knight with millions of dollars and say, let's make the best Blood Red Skies video game out there. Uh, yeah, White Knights, they're kind of rare, right? They're kind <laughs> of, there's, 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 not, there's not many of those people knocking about, and I didn't find much money down the back of the sofa either. So. Yeah, exactly. No, look, look, it just, if I could just take it one step, not beyond, uh, but before that, um, is to say that who is doing the Kickstarter? That, that, that's somewhat of a, probably a place to start. Absolutely. Um, it is not Warlord Games. It, it, it is Diecast Digital that's doing the Kickstarter with support from Warlord Games from a marketing uh, point of view and a kind of social media support point of view. So, and also, without giving away too much, Warlord Games are being extremely generous with the rewards that they are potentially offering to backers, uh, ridiculously so. Uh, in some of the pledge levels, which I'm not going to get into right now. 
Um, yes, so, every so backer it, can get a boom chit, and yeah. the highest levels will get two zoom chits along with it. No, <laughs> one maybe even in kind of what kind of a nice kind of plasticky resin yeah. type thing, maybe. But, yeah, I don't, well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, I so have to pick I, on Warlord. We it's a it's a yeah, love hate yeah. thing for us as the podcast. So wow. I always I always have yeah. to take that shot. They, they they are so we've acquired to be clear to everybody we've acquired acquired a, 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 the digital rights. Um, to produce a, a series of video games based on the Blood Red Skies uh, IP. So that's what we've got. They are a licensor, a licensee. So that's where we are with the relationship with, with Warlord. So why Kickstarter? Well, Warlord don't really, they're not a video games company. So this is, and I think to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time that they've entered into the licensing digital space. Um, so it's fairly new for them. Um, for us, as a, as a game development team, we're independent. We're, we're only three, uh, three people uh, full-time, supported by a team of really cool, uh, really good guys and girls uh, around us in terms of uh, freelancers and contractors. Um, but we're a small independent team. And this is a niche title. It is a niche product. No, it's not. Everybody um, yeah. plays aerial <laughs> war games. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of niche, especially so for digital. But so one way of funding this is really to we've invested, rightly or wrongly, we're, we're we're in and we've been in for for a while now. We've invested serious sums of money, and that's not to say we've invested millions, but we've invested tens of thousands um, to get us to the point we're at right now. Um, and we've really reached the point where we need to simply ask one question, which is, is this game what people want? Um, and, and the way to answer that question is through Kickstarter. And then secondly, uh, on from there, is if the answer to that is yes, and I very much hope that it is yes, um, then the, the next question really is, is to help us to make this game the best game it can possibly be by working and having your say within that. So Kickstarter fulfills those two roles. It fulfills, um, we need cash. This isn't free. Um, we do this professionally. Um, so yeah, this is what we do for a job. Um, and secondly, we want to work with the community to ensure that the game is, it has a really good product to market fit, that it's the game that everybody wants to see. Now, clearly we can't respond to every single demand, hope, fear, wish, dream, nightmare, uh, that, that potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people um, may have for the, for, for, the, for the title. But we can certainly pick up on themes and we can certainly pick up on um, very good suggestions and strong suggestions that come through um, community influences. So there is a huge chance here for us to work with, with the community. And that process started with the prototype. So, you know, right from the very, very beginning, um, we've reached out to, admittedly, um, a crazy bunch of um, lunatics, such as yourselves. A bunch uh, of troublemakers. I would not value their opinion yeah, for anything. Exactly. So we're clearly on the wrong path from the game. Exactly. We've, let, let, we've listened to them and done exactly nothing they asked for. <laughs> you know, that's not the truth. Um, I know, uh, I know. We're, 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 I mean... You know, you yourself basically had a couple of issues with the first prototype and one or two of those were deal breakers. But by listening and understanding that, that feedback from you, we were very quickly able to 
rectify those uh, two issues. One was pre-measurement from, from memory. I can't remember what the other one is. Um, but we rectified both. Something um, of no uh, consequence, obviously. I can't, I can't so, <laughs> Tempest so in a teapot. So inconsequential. Like, it's just gone. Anyway, we did it. We, we, we corrected it and we, right. and we moved on. And that's, that's, the, that's the idea. Clearly, there's a different approach going forward. So why Kickstarter? Well, it kind of makes sense. It, it kind of answers that key question. You know, and it allows us to assess the level of demand, which in turn will dictate how far and how quickly we can take the title in the first instance. Well, and I think that's a huge point for the community to understand. And I don't say this lightly, and I don't say this as a fanboy who, you know, regardless of whatever comes out of Diecast Digital, this is going to be great and wonderful and unicorn farts and rainbows. But if we want the maximum capability to develop the game, we need the maximum number of people and pledges and all these things going forward. And so gamers, we always like to dabble and try a different game. What I will say is the Blood Red Skies community, we have friends all across the wargaming spectrum. We have friends across the role-playing game spectrum. We have friends across the tabletop card gaming spectrum, all those things. If we tell people, our friends talk it up inside our gaming communities and say, hey, I know a lot of you wanted to pitch in and are curious about what Blood Red Skies is. Here's an opportunity to find out about it via the digital game. Here's an opportunity at a different price point of entry to at least play through the rules in whatever format and options we get by the time we get to the end of the Kickstarter. But it's certainly a different buy-in and it's a different level of commitment than purchasing a box that has a bunch of airplanes that you probably will want to paint uh, and you have to find a physical opponent and and all those things that sometimes are a barrier to entry. So I know I've done or at least attempted to do a, a lot of talking up between my generic wargaming friends uh, with wargaming in quotation marks, whether it means board gaming or other things, uh, and an, especially an attempt with other friends of mine that are Victory at Sea players, Cruel Seas players, that are bolt action players to say, Hey, all you guys that said, I'd love to play Blood Red Skies, but, and then after that dot, 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 I go, well, guess what? Jump into the Kickstarter, because that way, at least you will get a game, you'll get a game you can play, and you'll have something that will tell you if you want to commit to buying a bunch of little plastic airplanes and resin airplanes and pushing them around a table. So there's a really interesting point here for me. I don't know if it's very interesting for everybody else, so go if you think it's boring, tell me to shut up and I'll... Talk about something else. But really, it's a question of value. And one of the things that you guys were talking about in the part one of this podcast, yes, I did listen to it, um, is... I'm sorry for that hour of your life. You will never get <laughs> yeah, back. It completely wasted, right? But Brett, exactly. you were talking about something that you still had in shrink wrap that was basically 100 bucks or something, and you've, you've never actually broken the seal or played the game. Yet the prototype, because it's engaged you and you've got an interest in that, um, you've been playing that for you know several hours, if not running into too many hours now. In fact, what the hell are you doing, Brett? Get on to something. Uh, get on to something new. Um, so you know there is that element there, which is perceived value. And if you look at Steam uh, in the PC world now, the PC space, Steam. It's becoming a race to the bottom. The quality of titles, there's huge pressure on teams to get their games out. Um, the level of competition is, is tremendous. And there's a real kind of desire to, to 
constantly cut prices to, to, to really it's a race to the bottom. So in, in the tabletop PC space, it kind of sits slightly outside of that. I mean, as a tabletop gamer, I wouldn't blink about dropping 35, 40 bucks on a, on a set of models. Um, but if I go back into the video game world and start thinking, well, this, this game's like $25.99, $39.99, $49.99, God, that's expensive. And there's this, 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 this different perception of value um, within the two, the two markets. What I can say is that what we want to do as Diecast is deliver the best possible value, regardless of the amount of money that we raise. There's clearly a minimum threshold that we have to reach in order to deliver something that's meaningful and viable. Below that, it just, we, hand on heart, I can't give you a game that's going to be you know, compelling and, and, and it's worthwhile. Um, so there's the, the minimum amount of raise, the target raise that we need to hit. Um, if we then go above that target raise, then we have got clear plans um, for where we'd like to see the title going. But of course, that will be in partnership with the community. So it will be community driven in that regard. Um, but we've got real long-term plans for narrative-driven campaigns, single-player campaigns, and that's like full-blown skirmish mode for multiplayer, multiple player, multiple theaters of war, you know, all different nations, all different aircraft, because the, the, you look at the range that you've got now for, 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 for models and theaters, it's, it's limitless. So you're saying there's a chance I could have a DO-335? That's, that's a thing, No, right? no, shut up, go away. <laughs> <laughs> no one will fund an alternative one. Actually, that is a hilarious question because we don't know yet the size of the alternative history market. I would think by seeing games like Dust 1947 out there, Conflict 47, uh, and some other RPG titles, there is a huge alternative history market. Uh, so... Not in this release, <laughs> but there might be a, a Kickstarter possibility. And what I'll say is for all the people out there who play those diesel punk kind of games, uh, you know you love playing World War II stuff. So pitch in and join the Kickstarter and then Brett can start his campaign for <laughs> why Diecast Digital has to release, release the Wunderwaffe version of Blood Red Skies. Yeah, that might be a while coming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, th I think funding that one might be a little difficult, but that's all right. But anyway, so let's let's really drill down on on one of the points though that I want to make to the community, and this is one of the toughest things to explain about Kickstarters to people is that there is truly value in numbers. I know that people say, "Hey, I'd love to jump in, and I'll pledge pledge at a very high value because this has intrinsic value to me as this game." However, understand that you, one person, pledging at a high level won't get us over the hurdle as well as 20 people pledging in at a variety of, of values. And so it really is the community pushing the idea to all their friends that, hey, this is a project you should back. And let's be honest, for most of us that back Kickstarters and most of us that operate in that space, there are Kickstarters that we've backed at a low level just to see where it goes. And there's Kickstarters that we've jumped in whole hog and spent tons of money on. Uh, in an effort to ensure that they either make a certain stretch goal or that we get all of the options or all the cool things. 
And so I, I just would ask the community to take a look at that and make sure that we're doing our level best to get the word out. And so it's not just uh, dusty Blood Red Skies players uh, that are <laughs> that are playing it, but kind of as, as Brett asked, you know, what is the aerial wargaming community's feedback? And I think that still has yet to be determined because Blood Red Skies doesn't fit what some aerial wargaming grogs really want. You know, they want really crunchy, granular games, and they they demand that they spend four hours playing, uh, you know, thirty seconds of aerial combat against their buddies, and that's great for a handful of people, but um, those aren't the people this game is targeted at. Although I'd love to have them pitch in and love to have them play it and go, wow, Blood Red Skies is actually fun and I can finish it in an hour, uh, not four. So, but I digress. I'll get off my soapbox there. So let's let's continue to talk about the Kickstarter a little bit. Now I know everybody wants to know what are the pledge levels? What are the stretch goals? What are all these things? Uh, and we know that will evolve, but what, what can you tell us? You know, spill the beans a little bit. What are we going to look at for kind of the concepts going in for the pledge levels. So it's the Spanish Inquisition time, is it? It is, it is. All all the friendship is gone now. Now it's all about (laughs) answering my questions. Now now we get down to it. Um, Look, I think I'm going to still have to speak in in general terms, but there's an important thing to say here, that when I look at Kickstarters, they they tend to be full of gimmicks, and, and, and we've spent, and we still are, to be truthful, um, basically thrashing these things out between ourselves and, and Warlord Games. Um, but what we really want to do is deliver value, deliver value at every single pledge level. And as you've rightly said, Doug, there has to be something for everybody there. It's not, it's, it's, it's getting that range of people in. So there needs to be something at quite a low end level that's, that's a low barrier entry to people who just want to try and, and, and give give Blood Red Skies Digital a, a go, and in association, give Blood Red Skies a go, because it's one of the same thing. Um, but, and then there's going to be different pledge levels that, that should appeal to enthusiasts of, of the genre more broadly, and then there will be uh, tears again that will be will probably make people cry, but hopefully with joy and not, not laughter. And kind of, uh, kind of just, just, <laughs> I don't know, I think... What I think my credit card account, are... Yeah, tier, tier number five, that just makes me cry. It's just exactly. so funny and horrible. But, you know, so we're, we're trying to look at each and every tier and make those tiers meaningful um, and targeted at certain aspects of of the market, whether that be the, the hardcore or, or, the, or the people that are just kind of casual gamers um, looking to jump on board. Um, so there should be something in there for... For not everyone, because this isn't for everyone, but that there should be something in there for everybody who's got an interest in World War II strategy gaming and aerial combat, definitely. Right. So, you know, there should be something in there that, that, that's there. But the, the key thing, the key message to get across is that we want to give value that feeds back into both the digital space and the physical space. Well, and I think that's the point that I've really tried to drive home to people, and I know there's been limited things that I can say or I can confirm, and, and you as well. But I, th- I think we would say we tend to have a very broad view of what what is going to be offered um, to support, but the point isn't to make inside the digital realm different tiers of people beyond um, beyond certain levels of testers. So there's not... 
you've said early on, there's not going to be DLC for this. We're not going to say, well, if you pitch in at X level, then you get our DLC for this, um, you know, this faction only. And so you have to, you have to pay in at a higher level to play the Italians if the Italians are in there uh, and, and things like that. I'll have to press the high button. I forgot. Um, the, um, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 what we don't want to do is, is clear pay gates, right? We don't want to give, I want to give everybody that, that, that pledges for, and supports this game access to beta. Oh, how okay. Marxist of you. No. I know. Since <laughs> that's totally no, the buzzword you, these you, days you, in America. You, you, you told me that I couldn't talk politics. So I'm exactly. So you're not going to. Um, but look, it is that. There is a desire to say that every, because I, I don't like pay dates. I don't like putting content behind, uh, associating content with pledge levels. That just doesn't seem to Absolutely. make sense to me. What I want to do is associate rewards that are meaningful to the community with pledge levels. Because as you, the more you get behind us, the more I want to try and give back. But, but look, talking and staying on the Marxist uh, element of this, I am from humble backgrounds myself. I'm from a very working class background. So it's all relative, right? So if somebody drops, I don't know, 50 bucks on the game and somebody drops five bucks on the game, the first who drops five bucks in the game, that may be, that may be a lot of money for them. And it absolutely means every single dollar, every single pound that, that gets behind this project goes to one thing. And that's creating the best possible video game that we can. Absolutely. That's, that, Absolutely. that's the bottom line. And then in terms of DLC, it's way too early to be talking about downloadable content. Um, downloadable content, yeah. Back end, down the ways, down the road, um, possibly, potentially. But the further we get with the Kickstarter, the more we can bolster what I'm calling the base game. So the base game at the moment contains a set amount of content. Uh, there's a set threshold that we need to achieve to reach that. And then, obviously, the further we go, the bigger that initial release bundle um, will become, but it wouldn't be that, you know, aspects of that game would only be available to those that pledged at the highest level. That's not the case at all. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I like about the structure that you all have built, uh, is that you're not delivering different versions of the game to different pledge levels. Cause in, in my mind, that's just not fair. That's not fair to the, the players out there. It's not fair to the community. The point is we should all be working together at whatever level we can, financially, fiscally, et cetera, to Absolutely. push that Absolutely. that goal or push that project across the goal line. Um, so, yes, I'm still looking for a white knight with about $3 million to make the best Blood Red Skies game ever. So please contact Ash if you have that kind of cash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. more importantly, if you have that kind of cash, why are you listening to the Lead Pursuit podcast? <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a free phone number for white knights at the end of this, yeah, uh, exactly. the end of this podcast. Exactly. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Call toll free this number, dial white knight. Yeah. Uh, exactly. we'll, we'll see how that goes. But we certainly want to deliver value and we certainly want to be fair. There's one thing I will say that um, we are probably going to look to limit the number of people that get access to alpha um, and that's purely on a, on a on a management level basis dealing with feedback because we want to engage we don't want to just say to people you know we're going to listen to you trust us and then we don't and, listen and that's a great point because you hinted at it you were very uh, tactful unlike i would have been about the state of the current steam market which is to dump games that are 
barely alpha ready onto the final market and then, quote, we'll fix them in post. It's like bad yeah, photography. I've been on the other side of the, the, the space of the independent developer outside of Steam that there's some massively big hitting titles that, that account for a huge percentage of the revenue that, that Steam generates. And then very much like the music industry used to be, you know, there's, there's one or two hit bands and then there's millions of groups out there playing in pubs, clubs and bars and just trying to scratch a living. <laughs> exactly. So I've been on the opposite side of this and there is huge amounts of pressure sometimes commercially to, to, to get things out the door and, and, and then push product out. And, and that's one thing that, that, that's also affected Kickstarter, that, that, that some people say, well, we're in Kickstarter because we don't actually have the pressure of delivering. And that, that's where Kickstarter has failed sometimes because People think that, well, there's no real pressure there for now to deliver. We'll, we'll, we'll deliver it when it's done. Um, and again, things do go wrong with game development. It's a com complex beast. It's got lots of moving parts. Um, but set against that is we've got a, a lot of experience in this, this industry. We've got a lot of planning that's gone into it. But it also comes back to prototyping and working with the community because we, we're identifying areas right now Today, Sunday afternoon, we are we are here talking about things and fixing things right now regarding the AI and, and, and mechanics and maneuver templates and stuff like that. So, well, and uh, I think a lot of people want to jump in early and and they want quote early access, but they don't want the difficulty of engaging with a prototype or pre-alpha build or the level of detail that goes into that interaction between the coders, the developers, the play testers. And and it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, this game sucks or this doesn't work right or I don't like the AI. But to be the kind of playtester that says, I don't think the AI made the best decision and here is why and here I can document that. Or I think the game does not cover this exploit properly or the game does not capture this correct essence of movement properly. Those are the kind of things you need from playtesters in a prototype stage you don't need people that just get in and spend three hours playing the game and go well this sucks this is terrible or this was the best ever i can't wait for the final version neither one of those really help uh it is the people who put in the dedicated play test work and i'm just you know waxing philosophic about how great i am so <laughs> no, no i think this, it's horses for courses i mean obviously constructive feedback is always preferable and if people can articulate the reasons why they don't particularly like something as opposed to saying it sucks end of story um, then that's always uh, helpful. Um, we could uh, we could never hope to please everyone. There, there are always elements of any game that, that that people would like to change and 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 do that. And and what I would say is, get designing your game, your own games. Get, get into game design. Get into that kind of stuff and, and get into the mix because it because it's interesting. Um, but look, we we are. We're hopefully pretty good at what we do. We know what we're doing. We know our business. Um, but that's not to say that we shouldn't and um, do listen to the community. But again, I'm not going to sit here and say that we're going to respond to every single request because that's just not practically possible. <laughs> that, that is true. And, you know, I, while I'm trying to not be fanboy about this and I'm trying to be somewhat, uh, you know, distanced as the podcast 
host that is also involved in in playing the game and playing through the the uh, prototype stages. It has been great to work with you guys, and and thankfully you haven't had to endure my level of debrief of issue. This game fucking sucks. Uh, recommendation, Ash, fucking fix the game. <laughs> because because it has been fun. And and so even the frustrations we've had where you've had to listen to to Brett, Roger, Steve, and I uh, really kind of say, we don't think that's right, and I can't put my finger on exactly what the machine's doing, but it's not doing something right because at the end of the turn, it's where it shouldn't be. Um, but you guys have been great about responding to that and responding quickly, and I think that's what we want in the time leading up to the Kickstarter so that as we go into the Kickstarter and then deliver uh, various uh, various levels of interactivity, I'll say on the end, people who get to be a part of certain builds and people that will be then finally in the in the more beta-style build, um, there's going to be some frustrating things, and we're going to work through that. And it's just going to take patience and uh, a very deliberate uh, sense of development on the community's end, where they want to see something get better, not just poke holes in it. Uh, uh, well said. Thank you. What I, re- I reserve I reserve the right to, to poke <laughs> holes publicly and say this is the worst game ever. Uh, after we funded the Kickstarter, so I can get my digital edition. <laughs> 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 well, awesome, Ash. We have been talking for nearly an hour uh, about all parts of the Blood Red Skies digital uh, progression, how we got there. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of information to come out in the next few weeks. Uh, obviously, Lead Pursuit has a little bit of a hand in that. Uh, trying to make sure that you guys get the the best visibility out there for this product that you have that you're running to Kickstarter uh, and that we can work hand-in-hand hand with Warlord Games to help you promote this. Because once again, we, we love Blood Red Skies. Uh, we kind of want to see it transition to some digital uh, offerings, uh, and we'd like to uh, to be able to assist with that. So in closing, Ash, anything else you really want the community to kind of think about, uh, bear down on, and to uh, put the detail effort into? I just simply want to say thank you, I think. I think I want to say thanks to you guys at the Lead Pursuit podcast. You've been fantastic. Also to Roger and Ken at the Ready Room, all the people that have that have got on board so far and helped us to get the word out. It's, it's building. We're getting there. So thanks to everybody that's that followed us and, and liked us on, on Facebook. Um, Thanks to all the people also at you know Warlord Games because they are extremely uh, busy people and, and you know this is they're supporting us in, in this regard they're offering us their support in, in terms of their structure for fulfilment of, of physical goods and physical rewards so and more than that there's there's a real great team family spirit building around the title uh, from all sides. And I can only hope that with the support of the community that that develops and grows. So thank you, everybody. And February is going to be an interesting month. It's going to be a bit of a roller coaster. Um, do help us to get the word out. Do get behind us. And uh, thank you so much for your time and support. And thank you for today. It's been interesting. Absolutely. And we can find all things Blood Red Skies Digital social media. Generally, it's at BRS Digital Edition. And I know you guys are on Facebook, Twitter. I think Instagram's starting to get out there. So we have all kinds of ways of finding you. Uh, web address, it's still at your Diecast Digital uh, main address. So if you go out there, there's a tab for BRS Digital Edition. You can sign up for a newsletter so you can get all the lovely uh, updates in your inbox. There are blog entries. There's all kinds of information. So don't, don't think that only Lead Pursuit Podcast has the information. 
uh, go out there on social media, follow and comment is what I'll say. So if uh, if you see Ash and some of the other crew out there uh, answering your, your comments quickly and furiously, yes, they do. Uh, so interact, please, on Facebook and in Twitter, and we'll uh, we will take it from there. Brett, any last minute? Oh, by the ways, I'm just thinking about uh, that movie Dumb and Dumber. I'm I'm the guy. Uh, so Do three three five. You're saying there's a chance. <laughs> oh, you're stuck on the three three five. You jerk. <laughs> Well, Brett, the good news is there is the alternative ready room where you can at least hang out and talk about your alternative airplanes, uh, which the good news is if you are a fan of those airplanes, you should probably be seeing all the new beta cards and everything that is coming out of that uh, that effort. So if you don't know where to find things, Blood Red Skies, uh, there's obviously the Blood Red Skies ready room on Facebook. You can follow Lead Pursuit podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, no, we're not on Twitter because everyone else is on Twitter and I just refuse to be on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> so sorry there. But uh, like us, follow us, subscribe to the podcast, and please, please give us your feedback. Uh, if you don't feel like poking Ash and the Diecast Digital team in the eye about uh, the Blood Red Skies Digital Edition, feel free to give us your feedback and tell us what you think needs to uh, go into the game, and we'll pass it on along. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for enduring this podcast yet again. We'll talk to you all next week.